Hi, I'm Natalie. I'm Emily. And I'm Jessica. And we're the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. I just are United Methodist clergy women from upstate New York. And we're finding a different way to do spirituality. Sweet. We are recording and we are the Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers. And joining us for an interview today is the Reverend Stephen Cady, who is the senior pastor over at the Asbury United Methodist Church in Rochester. Welcome, Stephen. Nice to be here. Yes. So, Stephen, the first place that we always start with people that we interview is to tell us anything that you would like to about your spiritual journey. Sure. Well, I mean, it depends on how much time we have. We could go on for quite some time. But, uh, you know, I think I grew up in Kansas and in a suburb of Kansas City. And the place where I grew up, Olathe, Kansas, you were either Mormon or Catholic or Nazarene. And I was United Methodist. And mm -hmm. um, in other words, it was strange to be a mainline Protestant in an area where people were pretty conservative. And that was a uh, just a formative part of my spiritual journey that I grew up knowing from an early age that a church was okay to ask questions. It was okay. I mean, really, I spent my childhood, my, my dad was a nurse and my mom um, was a registrar for a middle school. Um, in other words, neither of them were in ministry or anything like that, but they sang in the choir of the church and they dragged me and my sisters along every Sunday. And um, I grew up knowing that the church was an okay place to run around, ask hard questions and get into trouble. And I still think that's what I do today. I just get paid for it, which is uh, nicer. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, but what was important about that was recognizing that the church was um I never had the moment where I had to sort of realize that that Moses didn't write the Torah, right? I didn't I didn't have the moment where I had to say like, oh, there might not have actually been a boat that carried uh, two of every kind of animal and seven of the clean, right? Like I just didn't have those moments where I thought that these things had to be taken literally, but always from a young age, recognize that something doesn't have to have happened for it to be true, and trying to recognize what that meant for faith. Uh, the point. Um, and, and tell me if I'm going too long here, but um, one of the pieces that was hugely formative for me in my uh, younger years was as a youth, um, our church hosted an AIDS conference, and this was in the early 90s, and it was a big deal. It was, the, it was for all of the conference, so the Kansas East Conference hosted this AIDS conference, and um, our new bishop, Bishop Fritz Moody, was coming to speak to us, and so during that conference, uh, he was, he gathered a group of us youth and I was probably, I don't know, 13 or 14 or something. And we were sitting in this room in the sanctuary of my, the church where I'd grown up. And I was really proud of my church for hosting this conference. And truth be told, I was 13 or 14. I didn't really know much about the AIDS crisis, about what had happened. I had some general sensibilities about it, but nothing too specific. But during uh, the, his talk with the youth, somebody came in and whispered something in his ear and then left and the bishop looked at us and he said well i've just been informed that when we leave here today there are going to be protesters outside of the church and this was fred phelps and his uh so i'm not going to use the term church for him but uh this was when they were just getting started and they were out of topeka kansas which is not uh maybe 45 minutes away from where i had grown up 
So they were on their way and the bishop looked at us and he said, you know, I had two gay sons and both of them died of AIDS. And he said, and as they were being buried, that man and his church were shouting, your sons are burning in hell. And then he said, I just want you to know there's another way to be a Christian. And for me, 13 or 14 year old Stephen sitting in that room, I realized like, I want to be the other kind of Christian. What was important to me was not is that he didn't say that's what a Christian is, which I think too many in our world right now recognize, um, but rather there's a different way. And in my mind, a more faithful way. And so that kind of stuck with me um, throughout, throughout my formative years. And it uh, became a foundation for the way that I understand my own faith. Um, so long story short, I didn't want to really go into ministry necessarily i wanted to do theater i wanted to open a theater company and then um my wife and i were trying to find a church just after we got married and uh we were working on starting a theater company together the space fell through and then uh we were looking for a church that we couldn't quite find one that was welcoming and at the same time there was this uh, George W. Bush was the president at the time, and he was pushing for a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage. And the implication was that if you were Christian, you needed to be supportive of this. And, you know, I remember back to Fritz Moody's words in my head, there's another way to be a Christian. And I was, uh, I said to Emily one night at dinner, you know, I think I might want to go into ministry. And she said, no. Um, because she really knew what ministry was a lot better than I did. Uh, you know, she came from a long line of ministers. Her father's a Methodist minister, both grandfathers, her great grandfather. And, um, you know, I still say that she thought she'd escaped the curse and, uh, she didn't. And I still say that she understands ministry better than I do. But, um, but the impetus was really about recognizing that there has to be another voice. There has to be another way. There has to be, um, a more faithful gospel preached out there and i've done my best um, to try and honor that in the pulpits that i've been honored to serve yeah that's a lot i actually <laughs> oh of course of course and also you explain that in the perfect amount of time and i to be to be clear i would have let you just keep talking and talking and talking because i find your i, I find your input and your perspective to be very valuable um, one of the uh one of the other people that we interviewed for this is harold wheat who serves in binghamton yeah. and um after we interviewed him uh he went home and he called me and thanked me for this for the opportunity to answer that first question because he said that as clergy people um we have nuggets, small nuggets of our spiritual journey distilled and pushed into an elevator speech mm -hmm. because we've been asked so many times, how did you get into this? What made you want to be a minister? What's your call story? Some version of that question, but it's always give me the quick version. Nobody wants to hear the slow version. And, and he said it was so it, that it was 
it was so life-giving to him just to be able to talk about the longer talk of his walk with God and everything else that's happened, you know, not just the, not just the answer that you can give somebody on the board of ordained ministry when they ask, you know, Absolutely. and it's, it, it and it, like, there's it, all of our stories in some places start to intertwine. Mm-hmm. And that is where like the commonality of God finds all of us. Because while you were talking, um, I, I also had a formative experience around the same age that involved the church's relationship with LGBTQIA people. And it was, so it was later because I'm younger than you, but it was like late nineties. And this is in Chicago and it involved our United Methodist campgrounds in the town that I grew up in. And um, so it was a popular summer vacation spot, similar to how our camp and retreat ministries in upper New York are. Um, And people would just rent out cabins and spend like a week there and just enjoy walking around and going for swim in the lake and doing activities. Um, And so it came to the attention of the other people who were staying there that one of the cabins was rented for a week by a gay couple, two men. And the other campers responded to that news by harassing those two men until they they fled. They mm-hmm. left without their deposit. They didn't enjoy the rest of their vacation. They got out of there as fast as they could because they were afraid for their safety. Um, so then this got back to the pastor of the church that I was at at the time. And he addressed the congregation and really didn't mince his words, made a very strong uh, impassioned statement about, guys, this is this is completely wrong. And I even if you think you have some biblical justification for why you cannot accept LGBTQIA people, and by the way, none of those verses mean what you think they do. But even if that was true, there is still no excuse to treat another human being this way. So, uh, and I was 12-ish when I heard this, and I had never heard any minister address LGBTQIA issues ever. Uh, those those issues were just treated as completely non-existent and when you think where we were socially and politically at the time this was like shortly after Ellen came out it was shortly after Rosie O'Donnell came out so some of these things were starting to get a little bit bigger on the news Um, I don't think there were any states in America that had legalized same-sex marriage yet and things were starting to get politically heated and that only increased as time went on so to start off on the foot of this message from my pastor saying we need to completely rethink our theology if we think that this is our theology because this was horrible you know like that that set the tone for everything that came of what church was to me as a teenager and then what church became to me as somebody who went to seminary and became a minister yeah there's yeah. such an irony in the story because uh, one of the verses that people use to justify um, the condemnation of LGBTQ persons is the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which when you read is really a story about failure of hospitality. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that they, you know, in some ways leaning on this verse, which is all about hospitality, um, ran off people. Um, I mean, I, I said in last Sunday in my sermon on Sunday that 
speaking about the um, split of the United Methodist Church, that while I don't bear my siblings in Christ any ill will, I do mourn the fact and the failure that from the beginning of our faith, the wider we open our arms, the closer we come to the world God intends. Mm -hmm. And I think we are doing damage to an entire generation of folks who have walked away from the church and who I don't blame. I mean, it takes oh. courage right now to darken the door of a church because of the way people have been treated. And, mm -hmm. um, and that, ha and it's, it has to do with this, but really it's about, um, this is a problem of biblical understanding about what we see as the authority of this book and how we make sense of it. And, and um, you know, I started by telling about how <clears throat> I never grew up thinking that Noah actually built an ark. Um, there's just, or that the world was literally created in seven days or that evolution was somehow evil. None of those things were a part of my Christian vocabulary. It wasn't a part of the grammar that we used in the church that I grew up in. In fact, it was always about trying to make sense of this. And there was a huge gift to me in trying to recognize truth in these stories, um, even when they when there's not fact in them, if that makes sense. I mean, and mm -hmm. I think too often we have pitted um, ourselves against science. We have pitted ourselves against those um, thoughtful understandings of scripture that, and, you know, I, the thing I like about young people is that they smell a rat. They're not willing to stay in the same room with it so they can walk away. Mm -hmm. I want to actually reflect on that as well, um, because um, my sister-in-law mentioned that um, she said, that pastors know that the Bible isn't literally true. Um, and that, you know, we don't necessarily get all our facts because we went to seminary and we had all of it deconstructed for us and da 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 da. But um, she said, it's such a challenge because it seems like pastors are afraid to actually share that information with their congregations. And it is a challenge because you can't just like teach, you know, an MDiv to your entire congregation, but how do you have good Christian education helping people reflect, especially when there's like a lot of people out there screaming that the only way to interpret the Bible is through the like lens of inerrancy and literalism. And I'm curious to know how you guys meet that challenge. So are you asking me or, do, or everybody here? I don't I, You and okay. anybody else, yeah, who wants to ask answer that question. Well, I can speak for myself, which is just, you know, for me, I made a decision early in my ministry that, um, so actually it was in seminary. I preached the sermon, you know, when you get your practice sermons going and I, and it was probably the second sermon I'd ever preached. And I was in seminary trying my best to say something. And um, I kept saying in this sermon, friends, mir miracles happen, miracles happen. And this guy came up to me afterwards and he said, wow, you really believe in miracles. And I paused for a moment and I thought, do I? <laughs> and, um, and it was this, it was just pause, taking a step back to recognize the um, weight of what you do when you step into the pulpit. And from that moment on, I made this commitment to myself that, I have these rules of preaching for me, which is um, be honest, be faithful, and don't be boring. Um, and I think you can be faithful without being honest. And that's, you know, you can you can go back and just say whatever you want to say about uh, scripture, about 
Moses. And I mean, we've, we've sort of focused on the, the old Testament, but the new Testament, you can do the same, same with. And so for me, it's like, if I'm coming across a passage that it's, uh, something that I find far-fetched or hard to understand. I want to at least name that to say like, look, this is, this is strange, but maybe there's something here we can understand. I, I don't want to discount fully the possibility that these things happen, but, but if Jesus never turned water into wine, it makes him no less my savior, right? It, I feel like if, if the virgin birth wasn't uh, a literal, um, somebody who had not had sex, that does not change the way that I understand the gift that is the incarnation. For me, I don't want to dwell so focus so much on the, you know, on the supernatural that we miss the gift of the extraordinary within the natural. And I think too often we do that. Yeah. Yeah, actually, that's uh, a lot of what you were just saying is really how we got the name for this podcast. Um, this came as a gift from a disgruntled YouTube commenter on one of my sermons, who was angry that um, I took a I took a passage that he has always interpreted as uh, Jesus telling you what you have to do to get to heaven. And I, and the hook of my message was more about Jesus warning us about the perils of wealth hoarding and greed. And he called me a dangerous liberal lady preacher. So <laughs> that that's, you know, you, you, there is a, there is a risk that you take when you preach in such a way, but also the, the negativity that you invite becomes uh, energy that can be used towards better ministry. No question. And I think it, I mean, for me, so strangely, I had a conversation with someone yesterday, um, sort of a disturbing conversation, which somebody called me to say that there's a church near my area who is leaving the denomination and mm -hmm. part of their stated justification is me um, in that mm -hmm. uh, my questioning of the miracle stories and the virgin birth. And I... I just think to myself, okay, um, but I mean, it's, it's, that's painful. I don't certainly want anybody to um, lose faith, but the truth is the entire reason I'm sharing these things is not to destroy faith, but to provide an opportunity to build it and to build it on something that has more solid ground because mm -hmm. you've been told your whole life that A equals B and the moment you realize it actually equals C, if you've built your entire faith upon that, on the A equals B, then you've ruins yourself and you suddenly everything gets broken down and so i mean i don't know if you probably had the experience just like me where you get to seminary and the moments of deconstruction people are losing their faith entirely and um, mm -hmm. i mourn that because i think this is a failure of preachers to step into the pulpit and say something that's honest it is it is and it's also uh so we talked about this in our introductory episode, if you go back and listen to that one, but um, what seminary feels like, that you go through this very big deconstruction of your theology and your view of the church, um, and then you build up something that is true afterwards. Um, it, it, but it, it, it reflects not just maybe a failure of a different pastor to perhaps preach more honestly, but it also reflects the failures of the system that doesn't maintain the integrity that it needs to at all times. 
which is also a good segue to another question that we like to ask our clergy who Actually, are here. Um, can I oh, just, yeah, sorry, like, throw in some yeah, reflection more? Yeah, sure you and can. I, I apologize. I had to turn off my, my camera um, because my internet connection is garbage lately. I don't know what's going on. Um, but I actually, when I was just out of college and I was kind of going through some deconstruction of what I believed about my faith and um, my pastor at the time, who was the United Methodist pastor, um, gave me a book by Marcus Borg. And that helped me to be in a space where I could be like, oh, I don't have to believe that this literally happened the way it's written in the text for me to still like accept that it's true. And in truth, it's like I go back and forth between believing things are, you know, literally true and like, you know, I can have a mix of both, both the rationalization, the rationalism and this, you know, scientific knowledge, but also the miraculous and the beautiful and the supernatural. I can have a mix of both. And that's okay. Knowing that that's okay. And I, we can give people permission to believe that way, mm -hmm. <laughs> that we all kind of are on a spectrum of belief here. So yeah. I think that's so true. And, and I think in the end, it sort of points to this kind of strange fear that people of faith too often have that God is not big enough to exist outside of the ways that we've come to understand God. And I think in the end, we just have to trust that where there's truth, there's God. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be fearful of truth wherever we find it. And while yes. I know that this passage is used uh, to condemn and to exclude, I think this passage from John 14 on the way and the truth and the life in my mind is a, a hopeful, ex, um, inclusive passage that says where you find truth, you're going to find God, the connection mm -hmm. to God that no one's going to get to God except through the truth. And so in my mind, we don't, we don't have to be fearful of it. It's okay to ask questions. And we, it's like, we almost don't trust in prevenient grace enough, Yeah, <laughs> which is ridiculous. <laughs> Totally. So then that makes a good segue to this next <laughs> question that we ask all of our clergy people, which is, if you have a ministry war story that you wouldn't mind sharing with us. Uh, just from today or uh, any day? <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. No. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about that. One of the stories that I, it, so I, I have served now three churches. My first was in Chicago. My second was in New Jersey. And uh, my third is here in Rochester. And um, and that transition from coming to, from Chicago to New Jersey was pretty stark, uh, because at the, at that church, I was, it was a kind of a medium-sized church and I, we had grown the youth program and on one week I had led this mission or the week before I had moved, uh, moved away. I had led this mission trip with 50 youth and 20 adults. And it was sort of this exciting moment. And then we got to our new church in New Jersey and there was 13 of us total in the entire congregation. And that included uh, me and my wife and my uh, daughter and uh, maybe my son in utero at the time. And um, it was like, okay, what do we do? Well, um, you know, the same commitments I have now um, were commitments there and trying to begin to speak about um, telling the truth and speaking honestly and openly, especially about um, inclusion and systemic racism and some other pieces there didn't always go over well with the really one large family that was uh, represented in that congregation. And so there's a gentleman who uh, had been on the trustees for 
I mean, years. I mean, this is a small church, right? So everybody's wearing the same hat. So now we're the trustees. Now we're the SPRC. Now we're the church council. But um, this is a, a man who kept walking out in the middle of my sermons. And uh, so I would say something in the moment I'd get to anything that was in his mind controversial. He would stand up and make a big show of walking out. And um, and then uh, on Christmas Eve, uh, there was about a foot and a half of snow that fell overnight, and he was the person who plowed the parking lot. And it wasn't a huge parking lot, but we're talking 40, 50 spaces. And um, and he didn't say anything about the fact that he wasn't, except that he um, let it be known to one uh, a member of the church who then called me to say, by the way, this man is not going to plow the parking lot. So... Um, I get up early and I, uh, starting at like 5 a.m. with my shovel, which is all I had, plow or, you know, shoveled the entire parking lot for this church. And it just <laughs> like, and I basically finished just in time for the services that evening. And um, it was just for me a reminder of ministry is really hard and you don't know fully what you're experiencing when you're getting into it or what you're, what to expect when you're getting into it. So I don't know, that's just one war story that um, comes to mind. There's lots and lots of others every day. There's a small, medium, large fire to put out, it seems, in ministry. Yeah, no, totally, there is, there is. And we survive them, we get through them. And it's a it's a lesson to ourselves and to others about a different way to do church. Yeah. Yeah, that actually acts as another good segue so the big topic that we wanted to talk to you about in particular, Stephen, was about where we are right now in the United Methodist Church, where it feels like right now we're in, we're in the middle of a really big UMC war, where we are dividing into camps between yeah. those who want to stay UMC, which is now literally a hashtag, those who want to go GMC, those who want to disaffiliate and go independent, and then perhaps a secret fourth thing that I haven't heard about yet. Um, it's causing a whole lot of fear among some of our parishioners. It is causing a, a lot of animosity in our relationships with everybody, including people that you know you used to be friendly with five to ten years ago who now feel like they can't talk to you because they're in a different camp. Uh, and it's it, it's cast a really big shadow on where we're going to go right now as United Methodists. So I'm really curious what insights you have about that. Well, I wish I had. Uh, you know, I don't know that I have anything brilliant to say, except I, I affirm and recognize and echo everything that you've just named. It is a really painful moment um, in the life of the church. And it's I, I think it's probably necessary. I think. I think we've needed to to split for some time and sometimes I mean there's there's such irony in all of these conversations right I mean there are uh, you know we believe that divorce is a we we allow divorce in the United Methodist Church why because we recognize that it sometimes while it's not something anybody jumps up and down and, and celebrates sometimes it's the best thing it's the it's the way to fullness of life for someone to to end a relationship, which, um, you know, we can talk about all the fact that there are more biblical prohibitions against something like divorce than there are certainly against any um, 
that are sometimes interpreted as being against LGBTQ persons. And yet we've found a way to um, to get through that. Except, So I think this moment is necessary and um, we have to do it. But, but I, and on both sides, I sort of mourn um, the way that it is sometimes, the, the way that it's happened. And there, there are a lot of things being said that I think are um, gonna be hard to take back. It's hard to unring a bell and you, um, you know, you, you, I, don't, I don't know if you heard about in North Georgia, they have stopped allowing any um, any disaffiliations to happen in large part because of some of the lies that are being told by um, those who are encouraging folks to leave. And, um, you know, I'm on the mailing lists for several of those more conservative areas, uh, you know, kind of caucus groups within the denomination, because I'm always curious as to what they're saying and how they're framing particular conversations. Um, what's painful to me is that there are some who are really obstinate right now in their um, refusal either to leave or to tell the truth in the midst of it. And so something like at jurisdictional conference this year, um, I made a motion on the floor, not a motion, I asked for a point of personal privilege and said, you know, look, if you are leaving the this this event is about planning for the future of the United Methodist Church. If you're not planning to be United Methodist, you have a moral obligation to not be voting here. Um, and while I recognize you, you have a right to vote, you were elected for this purpose. It's not right to vote. It's not okay to to just cause chaos and wreak havoc within these exist within these systems. So um, on the other side, I think that there are um, too stringent of um, uh, requirements put into place for certain places to leave. Like, who does it benefit to have somebody held against their will? I don't want a church in the denomination who doesn't really want to be there. I And too often in some of our um, annual conferences right now, we are making it, in my mind, way too hard for people to leave. If people want to leave, we should allow them to leave. That said, the part where I really mourn are um, those churches that are kind of on this strange threshold. And I talked to some friends down in um, Alabama, the um, Alabama West Florida conference, and they have many churches that have taken the vote and, you know, you need two thirds and they've come out at like 64%. So just imagine sitting in that church, having 64% of the people who have who have said, we want to get be out of here. And yet, because of the way this, the rules are currently work, that they have to stay. I just, I don't know who that benefits in the end, um, but it's painful. And, uh, and I, you know, I feel very blessed to be in a place that, you know, Asbury First is um, very clear about where we are. And there's, we are staying United Methodist um, so that we can um, be a part of a church that is more fully inclusive of all God's children. Um, but I also recognize that other churches, even in our region, are thinking about going and how do we support the United Methodists who now feel displaced uh, and who no longer feel like the church that they have been a part of um, is their home? And how do we also not speak so poorly of one another that we do damage? I'm mindful that the last time we had a major schism in our denomination in 1844, it took us until 1939 to get back together, 95 years. and. Um, we may never get back together as a result of this. My fear is that by 95 years, if we don't do this well, there may not be anybody left to get back together. Yeah. 
And that's actually my biggest fear. It's, it's one of the, one of the things that I, I, I wondered if you had wisdom about that other people don't, because um, when I've talked to other Methodist clergy people about this, we're very focused on what might happen at upcoming annual conferences and at general conference, which has now been postponed like three times, pushed all the way out to 2024. And I definitely hear that those are major sources of, of you know, that's a next big thing. So naturally our attention should be there. But I'm thinking about what this place is going to look like in a hundred years, because it, it because I, I, I you know, obviously I wasn't alive then, but I can only imagine what it would have been like to belong to the Methodist Episcopal Church South by the 1930s, decades after slavery had been abolished and the Civil War had ended, and to be sitting in a congregation that is really, it is in its state as a denomination pitted itself on, on a bad side of history. And yet here we are. Like, what are things going to look like in some future where the where some of the beliefs that we have now are unthinkable because we have changed, because we've progressed, because our hearts have softened, because we know better? And who is even going to be left serving? Um, it, you know, taking this in a slightly different direction. I had the privilege of getting ordained this year. And in our ordination class, we had seven people get ordained and we had one lonely commissioner. And that was it from all of upstate New York. We are not, we, we have a huge geographical spread that we are, that we are recruiting candidates for ministry from and nobody is stepping up to the plate right now at least not in not in the way that they were in years past and not in the way that the church needs them to we are burning people out at the rate that you know we're what are we going to have left for a future for this denomination if that makes any sense absolutely yeah it is painful and and i mean there are any number of things to say in response to to that i think you're spot on and um i mean look it's so uh, on the one side from the in terms of the recruitment in order to go into ministry at some point you have to have a good experience of church or of faith and you have to recognize i mean it takes a special person right now to see beyond the the weeds and the cloud and the mist that's in front of our eyes to something that could be to what faith looks like for me you know, it's thinking back to something like Fritz Moody's telling me there's another way to be a Christian. Um, if you don't have ever anybody in front of you that's presented something different, Natalie, you were saying that, you know, sitting in Chicago and hearing your your pastor say something about this is wrong. Um, you need somebody to kind of inspire you to say like, yeah, that that's the purpose. Because the truth is, I mean, we just came through this pandemic and everybody is sort of bemoaning why, well, people haven't come back to church or or they, they don't want to come back to church. And my question is, are they missing anything? Um, you know, are, what, what are we actually offering that is uh, so meaningful that if you don't show up, that you're, you're losing out on something? People go to the things they actually care about, but are we providing anything that's worth caring about? And 
if we can start to figure out that, what's our purpose? Why are we here? What are we doing? I think we can start to provide an, an on-ramp for some who can say, if you're looking to change the world, here's one way to do it. And here's a place to come and do it. And we could use your gifts, your grace, your skills to, to do this. And then the other side about all of the ways that the church, who are we going to be in 95 years or wherever, however far we're looking down the pipe, you know, we have to, we have to model our theology, which is a theology of grace. And I think if you know anything about the Methodist history of why we didn't get back together was because we had such, um, vis such anger, um, rancor between uh, uh, the Methodist Episcopal Church South and the Methodist Episcopal Church. We spoke so poorly of one another. Our publishing houses so, spoke so poorly of one another that it was hard to get back together just at some point out of obstinance. You've just been hurt too badly. You don't want to get back together. So I think for us, we're living in a world that has this cancel culture. And while I get it, I think we should, we should stand up for what is right and speak out against what is wrong. We also, as Christians, we also believe in grace. We're not people who cancel. That's the sort of scandal of this whole thing, that we're not a people who are going to say, um, you're you're beyond redemption. It's why we don't believe in the death penalty. It's why we, why we preach what we preach, because we believe that everybody is able to come into the fold. So I think we have to practice what we preach in this. And yeah, I find it super painful to think about somebody and um, one of my LGBTQ youth going into another United Methodist Church and being told that they're not fully human or that they're not a child of God or that they are sinful. I find that abhorrent. So um, we have to be able to name that that's wrong and be able to articulate why um, the, a different way. But then we also have to do the hardest thing in my mind, which is figure out how to reach a hand out and say, we got to stay connected in some way. Um, and and find our way forward. Otherwise, I think the church dies. Yeah. I like to, yeah. I've, I've been thinking a lot about this question. And in a hundred years, you know, is the church even going to be caring about a lot of things because the church is going to be so busy trying to put out the fires caused by climate change and mass migration. <laughs> so if you, you want to prep your uh, if you want to prep your congregations right now, you need to look at immigration and refugee ministries and like permaculture, <laughs> yeah. environmentalism ministries. But nobody nobody listens to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, Jess, if you want to know how cynical some of this has made me, um, while you were saying, oh, well, you know, to prepare the church for 100 years from now, and you were actually imagining what, you know, a, a actual church in 100 years, what I was thinking was, damn, 100 years from now, I'm, I bet they haven't changed any of the light bulbs yet because they don't want to piss off the people that donated them. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't change anything. Yeah, the way that millennials are not going to church, there's in the Gen Zers, man, there's like not going to be anybody at that church to change the light bulb. So I don't know, man. <laughs> I think, too, though, like that's that's part of the question of the future of the church that we have to be realistic about, though, is that institutional church as we know it now is not likely to be the future of the church, but that the future of the church is probably going to look radically different than it than it does now we're we're still trying to prop up the institutions that were designed 
I almost said 50 years ago, but I guess the 1950s were 75 years ago at this point, yeah. almost, you know, 73 years ago. Um, and, and so making space for different ways to do church or to be the church or to share the love of Jesus with people, however that looks. And I think that's something that the UMC is currently really, really struggling with. I had a conversation um, just two days ago with a colleague in our area who um, is in process of uh, shifting the way they do ministry in the world. And, um, and the new way that they're looking to do ministry, they've already started. It's more effective at sharing the love of Jesus than anything they've ever done in the institutional church as we know it. And so... Um, Maybe it's okay that there's not going to be anyone left to change light bulbs in the buildings that were paying through the nose to prop up. I, I, evidently, my four-year-old has a question. Is it is it all right if he jumps yeah. in? Yeah, Benny, what's your question, sweetie? Mm. Mm. Sammy Timmy is coming to our house. Oh, you just want to tell our friends that Grammy is coming this yeah. afternoon? Yes, we're well, very that's excited. That's really important, Benny. I'm really glad you shared that. Good but news ben, meant to be shared. Do you remember the question you asked me when we started this conversation? Yeah. What was it? I don't remember. He said, Mommy, where is God? And I said, let's ask Mommy's friends. So where is God? Oh. God is everywhere in all of us. Mm -hmm. And also, not in all of us. It's a paradox. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like to think about God as in that space between you and me. Nice. God is in Sarah and Benny's faces joining us. Yeah. I know we're in an audio only medium when, when we upload this. I have my mm -hmm. nine-year-old Sarah sitting on the bed with me and my four-year-old Benjamin. Their baby's one in three of, of my four. <laughs> Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. thanks for that little tangent yeah no worries i have my five month old here with us as well <laughs> guess i should call my kids up <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about doing a kid's podcast later on <laughs> yeah no we definitely need to exactly. because my daughter yeah my daughter's looking forward to hamming it up on here oh i have um, no doubt yeah lily will run the show <laughs> yeah totally but but one thing that you were saying, Jess, when you mentioned that we don't have a lot of, um, that there's a, there's a dearth of presence in millennials and Gen Zs in the church right now. Um, I have, a lot of my parishioners are saying that. And I have tried to find different graceful ways to uh, reframe that conversation and get them to see things that they're not seeing. Because for one thing, the irony is really striking whenever a, a boomer parishioner looks right at me and says, where are all of the young people? I don't see any young people. Where are the young people? And I'm like, 
you know so there's so there's that and we've you know we've brought in a pretty good wave of new members this year including a lot of uh including a lot of gen xers and millennials um and on top of that we're really changing especially since the pandemic that steven brought up a minute ago the way that worship has to be approached in terms of recording things and then we're live streaming and then we're posting to youtube and we're posting to the church's website and like we have a lot of different presences that don't have to be bodies in the pews but beyond that and i've i've definitely shared this with jess and emily already so my apologies if it you know if i ever become repetitive but i think this point kind of bears some repeating it, it part of the hangup that we're having in our churches right now about young people is not so much um, a lack of the actual young people, although I would like to see a better diversification and in representation in our pews for sure. And I, and you know, every place that we are missing an opportunity to reach people, I want to fix that. But we're also having this issue where we have boomers and their parent generation. So the greatest generation, I think is what that's called, um, that are yearning for earlier memories. So when they're saying, oh, I really, really wish all the young people would come back and they're looking right at me, they don't literally mean so much that they want a bunch of young people to come to the church. What they're meaning more is I miss the days when we were the young people. Yeah. I miss when the Sunday schools were full of my kids. I miss when my kids were all here in the pews with me. I miss those days and those days aren't coming back. There's lots of scriptural images that you can evoke for, for I, I miss the way things used to be and I don't know how to live in today because my heart is still completely yearning for yesterday. And there's, there's lots of wisdom there and how to move forward. But if you don't address that problem of, in my head, it's still 1985 and I can't get out of it, you know, you can't move forward if you don't admit that. Yeah. Greatest generation is basically gone at this point. It's all silent generation and boomers mostly mm -hmm. that populate our churches. But um, mm -hmm. whenever a boomer is like, where are the young kids, people, I want to be like, well, why aren't you inviting your kids to church? Where are your children? Because mm -hmm. those are the younger generations. Why, why have you failed to bring your younger children into church? That's, I think that's a fair question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think it absolutely is too. And I think a part of it too is um, just a, a recognition that the needs of, of the youngest among us have changed from what they were before. Um, in mm -hmm. no small part, because the, the needs of their parents are different. You know, my, my husband and I are 11, 12 years into our marriage now, and we've we've finally gotten to the point where we're not like nail biting at the end of every month trying to stabilize our finances. And it's not because we're extravagant spenders. Excuse me, children, mama's speaking. It's not because we're extravagant spenders. It's not because we're irresponsible. It's not because we don't budget or track our finances. It's 
because we've got student loans that are six figures all told and it's because we're living in a very different economic reality than our parents did and and so every time I hear my mom say something like well you know your father and I had some debt to clean up too when we were your age it's not the same um not to mention pandemics and wars and all of that mm -hmm. but it's just a very very different world now and I guess that's all I'm going to say for now. <laughs> you know, uh, so my uh, doctoral research was about meeting with young people about their experience of worship. And one of the things that I sort of recognized as a piece of that that sort of struck me at which in, which actually has changed the way that I preach is, um, you know, I was curious as to whether or not they ever encountered God in worship. And the answer was no. And um and so then I asked, is there any part of the worship service that you dread? And all of them uh, said, uh, you know, that is 100% of the, the young people I interviewed said the sermon. And when I asked them why, one of the young women said, well, uh, it's because they don't ever move me because they're never about anything. And she said, I'd rather them be about something that I disagree with, because at least I have something to disagree with. And for me, that sort of changed the way that I understand um, what I'm doing in the pulpit and why it matters. You got to say something when you're when you're up there. And then talking uh, broadly about the experience, the um, the phrase that stuck out to me was a young man who said, "I just want to be someplace where it feels like everyone else wants to be there." And so. Um, I also met with their parents and talked to them about their experience. And what was curious to me is sort of what Emily was just saying that, um, and what Natalie was saying is that there's this experience of, um, there, there is a kind of rose-colored glasses about their own experience. But when you actually ask them about it, they said, well, I'm, I, I get bored too, and I don't, I don't really like this. And when I really push them on it, and I say, so why are you here? They say, well, I'm here because I want my kids to have this experience and the kids are saying i'm here because my parents dragged me along and the problem with that equation is that nobody actually wants to be there and so how do we provide something how do we share something that actually matters where we're talking about things that we care about and that are actually going to affect the way we live in the world i think you're absolutely right that means not necessarily doing things the way we're doing them sometimes that works but sometimes it doesn't and so let's find a different way and it's really about the community in which uh in which people are singing not about the songs being sung it's not about the liturgy that's being used it's about how do you build a community that actually walks alongside one another in faith um, and i think that's maybe where we need to focus most of our efforts and energy mm -hmm. and these same issues are the reason why it, it, I, at least in large part and like a like a big global looking way why the umc is having so many issues with splintering right now because when you read um the it, like when it, like a it was very eye-opening for me when the gmc officially launched and then they um they wrote their their big thing about like these are these are our like core beliefs that we're going to base the denomination on and it wasn't just a bunch of stuff about GLBTQIA beliefs. Like 
this is like that's what we've used as the scapegoat for the argument for the last 50 years but what's going on is more is way more than that we're fighting about whether or not uh, we're fighting whether we should keep our itinerant system we're fighting about what we think about trans issues we're fighting about what we think about reproductive justice issues um like there's like there are huge 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 disagreements and I've, you know, spent a couple years in my ministry, especially when I was a younger lady, trying to not make people mad from the pulpit and use an approach of, well, okay, so there's this big issue that I know you're all thinking about while reading this text, but I don't want to say anything about that. So nothing. And A, that really insults the intelligence of the people listening to me. Like they, it, it, it's just there. I'm not, I'm not feeding them. And plus they, they know what I think. Like they're, they're, they're a lot smarter than that. So I learned quickly, don't do that. Just preach with integrity and preach the gospel and people will hear it. But we've shied so far away in the UMC from saying anything firm about anything that it, 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 now none of us can stand it anymore. And we're throwing knives at each other over it, you know? And yes, Jess, I, I definitely want to hear what you have to say about this, my dear. So actually, I, Stephen, that's so fascinating that that was, that was the outcome of your interviews is that nobody wanted to be there. The kids were there because the parents wanted them and the parents are there because the kids wanted them. One of the things that's been so interesting for me, um, taking my daughter to Sunday school is that she has this group of people who know her by name and they greet her when she comes to church mm. and they're happy that she's there. And they're excited to see kids and, you know, be kind to them. And I think that's um, one of the things that's really beautiful about what the church could be is that it's this multi-generational place where you have people who care about each other across different lines um, who are working together for common good. Um mm -hmm. And I think that's that's what we have to like remind our older parishioners that like it's up to them to make church a welcoming place for young people to get to know them and their children. Yeah. Um, because it, it makes a huge difference if you have if you're bringing a kid in and those older people are happy to see you versus giving your kids frowns for making noise, you know, <laughs> it yeah. makes a difference. Like one of the stories that uh, always has struck me from my um, research was that I was talking with a focus group of youth and they were telling the story about how they would walk down the street and do their Sunday school at Panera and then they'd come back and um, they were coming back one Sunday and there was a woman who was getting set up for the fellowship hour and she set out this big, huge uh, box of donuts and one of the youth went over um, and went to get a donut and this woman said no these aren't for you um these are for the these are for people going to church you've already had your and it was this moment where she was expressing um not in in ways that i'm sure would embarrass most of the people in that congregation but um she was expressing what is sometimes the tacit understanding and what comes across to um unsaid to 
to young people who, in churches, which is, this isn't actually for you. Um, we want you here, but mostly just to be able to say that you're here. Um, mm -hmm. But when you're here, you need to do what we do and do it in the way that we do it. Um, and we don't really care about you as a person. Now, I mean, that's, I, I get that I'm putting words in their mouth, but in, the, in a way, it doesn't take much for that to come across. Mm -hmm. That is, that is correct. And to just kind of have some, you know, no knowledge that the kids are going to be a little noisy. They're going to want to run around. They're going to, you know, want to do things a little bit differently. They, you know, they're going to eat a lot of snacks and they're going to eat the, you know, and I'm thankful that my church is like, by and large, come to realize, oh, yes, we have to have Capri Suns every week for the kids at, you know, coffee hour, just to like make sure that, you know, oh, the kids know that it's okay to come get cookies and something to drink, that it's not just coffee, because kids don't drink coffee. Yeah. So, yes. So they shouldn't. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know my daughter's not going to drink that. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. But it also becomes an accommodation issue. You have to have the Capri Suns there to be drunk. And like you have to have safety measures in place for kids who want to get up and run around. You know, it's the same problem as needing to have pew cutouts so that somebody could be sitting there in a wheelchair or having ramps and elevator lifts and things like that so that people don't have to use the stairs. If you're not willing to accommodate the space, then it's not really open to all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, and I've been thinking about that a lot because now we've had a few like younger families join the church or, and come more frequently. And I'm like, what do we have available as a ministry for these young, young um, parents? And the truth is we don't have a lot right now, but the fact that I'm like thinking about it means that maybe we can do something, <laughs> bring them yeah. to, you know, give mm -hmm. them, make them feel like, oh yeah, you are welcome here. And we have something that, you know, we think might help you if you're interested. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a good segue for one of, our, one of the other questions that we ask every one of the guests that's come on here. What's something that excites you? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm in this moment, I think it has been so hard and it's the pandemic has been um, a piece of it, but I'll be perfectly honest. I think ministry changed the moment Donald Trump went down the golden escalator in 2015. Just changed. It changed the way ministry happens. It changed the conversation. It changed the way people talk to one another. It changed the way our society works. And um, and that's been really hard. And I think trying to find our way through that step by step, piece by piece, trying to help understand trying to help people understand how a man who spends his life in unrepentant greed, serial adultery, and compulsive deceit can somehow win the hearts and minds of the Christian majority. I, I find that really disturbing and, and really hard about ministry. But what excites me is that at the same time that that has happened and the pandemic coming on the tail of that and all that has happened uh, in it, I think kind of the separating of the wheat from the chaff, this moment of kind of letting go of some of the things that um, were holding us down and re recognizing that things can change 
and that uh, we can find our way. I think that provides some new opportunities. Um, I know for, for our church, at least Asbury First, we're recognizing that um, we now have, I mean, I said at the beginning of the pandemic, we may never again have more people in our pews than we do online. And while our pews are starting to fill back up, the there's still more people online watching than who are physically present. And my prayer would be that someday we'd be you know, packed to the gills and still have um, more people online. So I think it just affords some opportunities. There's some exciting new kinds of ways of doing ministry. And I think the very knowledge that we can change and still be faithful is an opportunity for us as a church right now. Um, as hard as these last few years have been, I think kind of being able to say something, being able to separate the wheat from the chaff, trying to find our the kernel of what really matters when all is said and done. I mean, there's nothing like a global pandemic, I think, to set your um, priorities, to get to remind you of what really matters in life. And I think we've done a little bit of that. And while it's really hard and I don't, it's going to get harder before it gets better, I, I do think what excites me is the, the possibilities that are ahead because we know that change is possible. Yeah, totally. If there is one thing you could tell the world about God, what would it be? Well, I, I suppose I would probably say something like this, whether you believe in God or not, God believes in you. And that um, the, the point of faith is not about what happens when we die. It's about what happens when we live. And we don't have to wait until death to find that out. And for me, the gospel in four words is love leads to life. And when we love, we find life. And we can catch glimpses of that right now. And so what I want people to know about God, about faith, about um, what, why I have given my life to this is because I believe that life is possible for every single one of us. And, um, the way to that is through love. And while that sounds simple, when we try it, it's really hard and um, we need support in doing that, which is why the church exists. We clear the obstacles away and we remind people week after week to keep facing in the same direction. Totally. That was That's awful. really beautiful. Yeah. Totally, totally. And just so you know, well, it, for each of our guests, one of the things that I, I sit here and scribble is the, is the person's special paper. Uh -oh. So yeah, our, our viewers aren't, aren't, you know, our listeners aren't going to get to see the visual there, but yours is full of, of your, all these little pieces of wisdom. And I have one for each person that we've interviewed so that I have all of these little, all of these little nuggets of, of love and truth and just these things that come from each person's heart. So I thank you for sharing yours. Honored yeah. to be here. Totally, totally. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I know that it is scarce and valuable. Glad to be here. Very honored. And I wish you all the best. Yes, totally. Peace so, and love. If okay. we ever need, uh, if we ever need help with anything, we should uh, give you a call, huh? <laughs> Any, whatever I can do to help, I'd be happy to do. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Peace. All right. Peace. All right. Take care. Dangerous Liberal Lady Preachers is produced by Natalie Bowerman, Emily Hugie, and Jessica Glazer.